The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. The tourism sector has been absolutely decimated over the past few months due to COVID-19, and we've seen massive losses in what was an $8 trillion industry. The World Travel and Tourism Council is estimating that up to 75 million jobs are at risk globally, and that 1 million jobs are being lost every single day. It's also predicting losses of $2.1 trillion in revenue, and it seems that the risk of a global travel sector collapse is very real. In the US alone, the stock market has seen a loss of $332 billion in value across the booking, entertainment, airline, cruise and hotel industries. In the past 70 years or so, we've seen the tourism sector grow exponentially with the advent of cheap travel, high tourism demand and innovative travel products, including volunteer tourism driving it. I do a lot of work through my consultancy in the travel sector particularly with companies that are looking to improve practices around ethical community engagement, volunteerism, and also ensuring communities aren't being exploited through tourism. And I've been spending a lot of time over the past few months thinking about what a total shutdown of tourism means for communities that have become reliant on tourism for their survival. Without the flow of tourists and their dollars, communities are being plunged into poverty overnight. I've also been wondering what responsibility the tourism sector holds towards those communities it has profited off, and they have profited, particularly those companies who have set up volunteer tourism products that were already questionable in terms of their development impact. It's my hope that the silver lining in all of this is perhaps an opportunity to avoid the mistakes of the past and to rebuild tourism in a way that truly benefits and respects local communities. However, the reality of this remains to be seen. To help me unpack this and and a whole host of other things, I invited Lee Barnes, Chief Customer Officer at the Intrepid Group, to be a guest on today's episode. Intrepid is the world's largest adventure travel company, and back in 2018, Lee was appointed to the newly created role of Chief Purpose Officer, where he focused on the sustained growth of Intrepid's purpose-led initiatives, working closely with the Intrepid Foundation and other external partners to create more shared value projects and operate a business with purpose beyond profit. In late 2019, before all of this happened, Lee moved into his current role as the Chief Customer Officer, responsible for customer experience, digital and brand, as well as advocacy on issues that are important to Intrepid's customers, communities and workers. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Lee. Thanks for having me. Cheers. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to have you here today. Uh, First of all, I want to ask you a question I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? 
look, um, I think at a fundamental level, there's the basic interaction with two people, just treating other people how you want to be treated. Um, I think that people get probably caught up in not doing that a lot of the time. And I think there's just a base human level about treating people with respect, a bit of empathy can go a hell of a long way. And it certainly has in my life and my career and just having that first and foremost at the start of every day, you know, looking after people um, and doing the right thing and interacting with people and that such base level interaction and quite interesting. I've done a lot of research during this COVID time around what makes you happy and it's quite interesting that interacting with strangers is actually one of the things that helps give you endorphins and can, can help contribute to your happiness. So big believer in just that fundamental one-on-one looking after people. And then the other piece, I suppose, is probably the bigger, broader context in what we do every day and ensuring that I think that what we do from a business or personal or macro level creates a positive impact and does the right thing. And then also where you do have negative impact that you try and minimize it or reduce it or protect against it. So I think yeah, at a macro level is doing things with a positive impact and then trying to negate um, negative impacts that you may have. Yeah. And do you think that's something that you've kind of always expressed through your work or is it something that you've kind of come to more recently? No, not always through my work, Lee. I was a typical beer drinking fried Thinking eating, uh, Commodore V6 driving young man, um, more focused on <laughs> what I did on the weekend uh, as opposed to what I did Monday through Friday. Yeah, I think it's just something I've, I've grown into fundamentally. I think I've always wanted to help people. I wanted to do the right thing, but was probably a bit of an ass in my early 20s like a lot of people and um, yeah. just sort of grew up and had positions and, and work where I found that when I – looked after the people I worked with, looked at, looked after other stakeholders, that I was happier, that my results were better, and from that just more opportunities came. So, yeah, definitely not someone that's had it at their core. I think when I was first going into university in the workplace, I imagined it was probably a bit more like Mad Men where I'd sit around drinking vodka, coming up with cool ideas. But then, yeah, I think working at Intrepid also gave me a massive moral compass as well and, you know, definitely, for want of a better term, drank the Kool-Aid and, you know, see a clear pathway between purpose and profit and ensuring that, you know, when you do business, that it's all good. And um, I think that's been a big part of my journey as well. That's interesting because you've been at Intrepid for a while in a variety of different roles. Is that something that, you know, it, it kind of came through when you joined the company or is it something that's kind of been built as you've been there? Yeah, I've been with the company uh, almost 10, over 10 years now. So my beard was much smaller then and then I definitely didn't have a man bun, so it's been a long time that there's those things have happened. Look, it's always been there, the company, Daryl and Manch, when they started, you know, wanted to give back and wanted to make sure that our trips and the way of travel gave back and was a, was a force for good. I think we probably, for a bit, we were a part of a, a joint venture with TUI, a large multinational travel company, probably lost their way both, you know, in that joint venture where we weren't focused on that. But since we've come back under private ownership the last four to five years now, it's come through in everything we do. We really try and have that purpose and profit. We believe that doing the right thing means we grow and that the more we grow, the more money we're able to put into doing the right thing. You know, we've been carbon neutral since 2010. We do a lot of work for yourself around modern slavery. Um, we've been building community-based tourism projects and those things wouldn't have happened if we weren't growing, you know, profitable business. So they go hand in hand. And, you know, the negative side of that is right here, right now, in this particular crisis, we aren't. And that also causes issues where we aren't able to fund and do those things as well. So it is quite an a interesting way of doing business and looking at things. But, yeah, it's really become that last four years where we've really become 
much more focused, doing a lot more things, but also helping our business point of view, becoming a B Corp and a number of different other avenues we've taken. So let's talk about COVID-19 then, because the tourism sector has been completely decimated by this. And of course, Intrepid hasn't been immune. Can you tell us how this has affected the business? Yeah, look, it has been one of the, the toughest and hardest things that's happened to the company in its 30-year history, of 31-year history. Our trips are now um, suspended until the end of June. So that's the first time that that's happened. And in Intrepid, we had to get over 3,000 customers on the ground back home safe into our own countries. It was a massive undertaking, unlike anything we've ever done before. Then been able to communicate to all our customers again in a way about something not prepared for and then we've also got to you know communicate work with our various supply chains in over 100 different countries um and that ranges everything from local leaders to our you know flights and our partners you can imagine the travel supply chains long and vast it's very complex it's hard to track all those things and then we've got you know one of the hardest things one of the most important things in the trip is our people and we've we've had to go through a round of redundancies and we've currently got you know, a large, large chunk of our global work, workforce in stand down and it's tough, it's crap, you know, there's, none of this is fun or good and, you know, if you spoke to the people that are working, it's really hard. Right now, you know, you're on the front, you're doing tough things and busy, but it's not the fun growth stuff. So, it's you know, it is, it is a bit harder. So, yeah, it's hit us hard. We haven't got everything right. I think we're doing a pretty good job. We've got all our people home safe. We're now communicating with our customers. We're starting to look at what purpose and responsibilities but it's hard it's taking longer and it's been just you know, horrible for some parts of it something that I would never have imagined just eight weeks ago ten weeks ago. So tourism has increased exponentially over the past 70 years you know we've gone from 25 million arrivals back in 1950 to 1.4 billion in 2018 and companies like Intrepid have pretty successfully ridden that wave and and forged new ways of engaging people in travel. And in that same year, 2018, you guys delivered revenue of 379 million. And, you know, you seem to be enjoying that record growth. Was there any way to see this coming or or from a risk perspective, did you ever plan for a global pandemic? Yeah, we did risk planning. I think what we were starting to see and where a lot of our focus was on was climate. We expected a lot of tougher things to happen, specifically in the next item. And they have, you know, the, the fires were horrific. The tourism drastically affected in Australia. It would have been a big enough shock in itself in one year. So a lot of our risk and um, crisis planning is around climate issues. And we'd started to see those things happen, whether it was the bushfires in Australia, uh, increased uh, temperature in India, or, you know, various different machinations of different climate events that were happening globally that was affecting our trips. And we had spent a lot of money um, in being, you know, um, carbon, carbon neutral. We, we committed to being climate positive, doing seaweed projects off the coast of Tasmania to draw down carbon, and a number of things around mitigating that crisis. The other one, too, that I think we saw probably more work and we're looking at was around um, over tourism um, and seeing the effects of that because that was, and there's always in various ways in the tourism industry, seen peaks and booms where certain destinations have been good or not so good because of it. Yeah, and that's been peaks and troughs for, for a while. We're always looking at how that might be affected. And then probably not so much from a crisis point of view, but we were looking more and more on working around supply chain, value chain type stuff. You know, and what was the modern slavery is a perfect example of that. What was happening in our supply chain? Yeah, good, bad, or otherwise. So I don't think we'd ever planned for a 
a pandemic like we haven't, to be brutally honest. We'd more planned around the climate, over tourism, and, and people crises as opposed to something at this scale. Because we've been through bird flu, we've been through SARS, and we probably thought they were as bad as it was going to get. Without a healthy planet, we don't have a travel sector. Yeah, so that was sort of our thinking around trying to combat that and where we thought most of our energy should be going. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was talking to another guest on the previous episode about how different this crisis is in terms of normally when a disaster occurs, the wealthier country that's not affected provides support in the form of people and money and resources to support that country. But in this case, every country is affected. Uh, It's not localised and those traditional kind of sources of support are decimated themselves and unable to respond. And and I think that's what makes this so different. We we truly are, I guess, all in it together. So over time, some or many communities have become almost entirely reliant on tourism for their survival. Tourism has replaced or, or become their only local economy. And in the middle of this pandemic, we are now seeing those communities crippled and many of them in countries where there's no safety net, no government stimulus or bailout. If these communities have become reliant on tourism for survival and the tourism sector has profited off them, who holds the responsibility to support them through this pandemic? Yeah, look, um, my take and my belief is that we should all be responsible. In any sort of business relationship, we do need to take into consideration all stakeholders, and that includes the planet, includes the communities, includes the the employees, and includes, obviously, the shareholders of the organisation. I think where this crisis has differed and where it is different is that all the stakeholders are hurt that bad that they're actually unable to help and support each other. I think that's where it's fundamentally different. I still believe that we should be where we have disproportional relationships with our value chain and our um, supply chain that we should be working with them. We're communicating with them now. We're doing everything we can to keep them across what's happening. But I think the hard thing is that we're hurting so much right now and trying to right-size and get our business right. We haven't had a chance to lift our eyes and start to look where we want to be from a responsible point of view. We're starting to do that. We're definitely starting to get back in and say, you know, for example, what we're seeing with the rhino and the elephant right now is the poaching's increased. Rhino numbers are getting hit pretty hard. Elephants were no longer being fed and there's malnutrition. There's lots of concerns around that. But right now we're so focused on our own, own business that we haven't been able to get out and work with some of those partners like we normally would. So I think that's a long way of saying we should be. All, should, all stakeholders should be involved, but I think that's going to come. I think as we start to rebuild, and I think one of the things we're discussing internally and what is, uh, we believe COVID will rebound, but if it's going to rebound, it needs to rebuild more responsibly. And how it does that is going to be interesting. It's going to be very different. There's going to be a number of different models and ways of making that happen. You know, as we start to come out of this, we're going to be looking a lot more at how to support those vulnerable communities of business. But yeah, I think it's going to take a little bit of time to work out what support they need, how we should help, what our role fits in. We want to move away, you know, make sure we're not contributing to tourism. So, you know, it's going to be just as complex, but I think the appetite to fix some of these things now will be bigger than before because we were just sort of cruising along as a sector in the status quo, which is what happens. We're all trying to make sales, you get caught up, you're growing, you're doing those things, but all that's out the window now. That hopefully is a catalyst for, for change. Yeah, and, and that's the question I have is, is there a silver lining here? You know, we know that um, 
there are many practices within tourism more generally that do harm and exploit communities and, and don't offer the best or the most mutually beneficial impact for those communities. Can there be a paradigm shift in relation to how the sector engages with communities? There's two things. I think, yes, there's silver lining, but right now it's not. Like right now it's just pain and it is crap and there's communities that are hurting, businesses are hurting, it is you know, shit, right? It's, 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 it's lack of a better term. But for us to rebuild, yes, there has to be silver lining. I think we will look at the way that climate will be a bigger component. I think everyone will be looking at how they rebuild without having the same impact on the planet. You know, we're seeing already the, the regenerative power of, of Earth already in some amazing different ways. You know, I think everyone will be going back now into, you know, fundamentally wanting to having more healthy communities. The healthier the community is, the better the tourism product will be. And if that community is able to sustain and thrive without times of high tourism, that actually becomes a healthier, better community for tourism to go back into to see. So fundamentally, that makes sense. Yeah, that the healthier, the more connected that community is, and it is not just dependent on tourism. It has a, a you know a number of different ways to get its revenue, social capital, etc. But it is going to be a better tourism product. The problem is that we've got to protect against that doesn't become exploited. You know, it doesn't become the, the only way. And if we know if that happens, it will continue to be a better tourism product. So I hope that that becomes the biggest shift, that the silver lining is the focus becomes on healthy communities. I think we started to see that. I think there was some really interesting stuff with diff different destination management organisations that they'd sort of moved away from being just marketing organisations to starting to being managing the destination. I think one of the coolest examples I came across was in um, Victoria, that Victoria and Canada, that they were starting to see um, the orca population being Reduced. Yeah, it was going through its challenges. Rather than spending money on marketing, they actually took money into feeding and providing a food source for the orchids to ensure that they came back and they were, they were plentiful and they started to repopulate the area, which would then meant more tourism, which meant more money for local communities, which also meant more protection of the orchids. So you can see there that focus on having a healthier community actually helps from not only a social environmental aspect, but also a fiscal one, yeah? So... There was starting to be some super interesting stuff like that happen. I hope that continues and to be the, the focus. That, I think, as I said earlier, you know, focus on those healthy communities should make a better experience for everyone. But um, that's fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you know, it's my hope that we start to see the end or we have seen the end of some of those really harmful tourism practices, you know, in the volunteerism space, such as orphanage tourism and volunteering, anecdotally, from a Rethink Orphanages perspective, we've been hearing of countries issuing directives to send children home from orphanages because tourism's dried up and that means no money. So they can't support the children there. From a child protection perspective, that's validating and saying, look, these kids don't really need to be there in the first place. And, and tourism is the thing that's driving it. But on the flip side of that, from a child protection perspective as well, you've got a huge risk of sending many, many children home without monitoring or evaluation or checks on their welfare. So it's that double-edged sword. Yeah, and I think, I think we've been seeing that here locally, domestically in our school programs. You know, kids that were, you know, school was a safe 
place, unable to go to, to school. And my mum is a, um, an educator at a special needs school in Victoria, and that's some of the challenges they're, they're facing right now. And the school is a safe place. It's challenging in a way that I don't think anyone's thought of um, in a number of different different ways. So that's in Victoria, you know, one of the best places in the world to live from a social health financial point of view is if you go and put that in Cambodia and Nepal where you know, unfortunately that isn't the case there's some really big risks there look and I also think it's, it's compounded too you're not just removing tourism you know there, there'll be less money from locals working so it's going to be like compounded on compound the issues because there's not just tourism going there there's going to be less other revenue which creates a whole bunch of other stress so it's going to be unfortunate Fortunate, some of the stories I think we'll hear over the next year. I think the ones we're starting to see have mainly been wildlife around the elephants and the rhinos, is what more of the stories I've seen right here right now. But you know, I think some of the damages just from a, a global um, crisis like this is going to be a little bit confronting. But as you said before, hopefully, there's some silver lining where we can rebuild some of these systems a bit better. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think I was talking to a previous guest about the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and how. You know, there's been almost a decade of work towards that and a lot of that has been undone in two short months. That's really sad. That's really sad that, that there's been so much effort to go into addressing these global issues and we can see that a lot of those particular goals are not going to be met and are going to, in fact, be worse than where we were at two months ago. And I think, you know, that's where this opportunity to come together and to work with other sectors or do that cross-sector work to try to mitigate or address some of that for the future comes in. There had been a shift too. Like I'm speaking a lot of tourism events and if I rewind, you know, six, seven years ago, up there talking about sustainability, everyone's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? What is Intrepid talking about? And then in January... February, I was in New York at the New York Times Travel Show and on a panel with a range of other uh, big travel agencies and operators and everyone was saying sustainability was the future of travel. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And to think that all of these companies you know, three or four short years before were not interested in talking about modern slavery, supply chain, planet, ecosystems, we're now all saying it's the absolute future of travel. And then that could be all wiped out. That does scare me. Maybe I am a bit too optimistic, I do think that if we the focus will be on rebuilding more sustainably and responsibly, because we'll have to. And I think that that will come through and we can't just have tourism exploiting the planet and exploiting the people they need to access. So that's my hope, but it is a little bit scary when you see a lot of stuff that's been undone. Yeah, yeah. So where do you see Intrepid in six months' time? Realistically, I think we're going to struggle to see outbound international travel out of Australia before the end of the year. I think Australia itself will be open in state borders and I, I think it's probably a big opportunity for trans-Trasman tourism to come back. I think that it's going to take a little bit longer for international travel to, to come back in so far as us operating our business to 100 different countries again. I think that's going to come later into 2021. So I think for us, you know, in six months' time, I think we'll have done a lot more work around getting Australians to see Australia. Um, I think we'll start to see that. I think we'll see you know, more Canadians see Canada, more Americans see America. I think we'll start to develop a lot of places there. 
I think we'll be um, really re-looking at our responsible business practices. I think, you know, we've been carbon neutral since 2010 and we've made some big strides in the reduction of carbon, but we're going to be coming from a totally different place. The size of our business will be so different. So what is our role play? So it will be different. So I think there'll be a realignment of that. How we engage and communicate with our supply chain and interact. We've got a fresh start in many, many regards. So I think we'll be... You know, going there. And then I also see us being in different business streams that we may not have been in before. Um, just by sheer having to survive, you know, we'll be looking at different opportunities that change the way people see the world. And I don't know what they are, but I'm, you know, I think we're in a good place as an organization to take advantage of some opportunities. And I think, you know, right now the world could do with more intrepid people, more people that are curious, more people that more responsible, more people that, you know, want to have fun and that are kind. So I think that the businesses we could be in in six months' time could be quite interesting as well. But at the heart of that, it'll be sustainable and it'll be experience-rich and those things won't change. Yeah, wonderful. So I want to kind of turn it around and go back to you. How do you think your concept of doing good has evolved over the years? Yeah, I think the biggest single change for me has been going from one-on-one doing good so my about me doing good to someone else to being that's that's it it was just purely my relationship to someone else to now understanding that i'm privileged i'm a very lucky person and i need to help beyond my inner circle yeah you know it's not just about me being good to my family and my friends that because of my privilege and the fortunate position i hold at a pretty cool company that i need to help others and i think you know moving back and i think the biggest piece of work that i personally been quite passionate around has been um, around the climate around the planet and understanding that the impact that I can have is beyond just what I can have one-on-one and you know using and helping getting a company to take up an issue that is important to them actually do stuff like put really money serious money behind out making stuff happen getting other businesses to change to help other companies to become b corps being part of a climate strike and going you know getting other organizations to join up i think because of my lucky position i find myself in i have a responsibility to do good beyond that so is there somebody that you can think of that has or is currently your greatest influence in doing good and living a good life oh look i always go for the cop out on this one it's definitely my parents yeah my mum uh, has always been um quite a big carer you know working with underprivileged children or just our family um and then my dad in that no nonsense you just not a dick to other people and that you should be um like if someone's worse off just do them a favor buy them the beer sort of an old school no nonsense way about just doing the right thing and don't expect athletes for it and don't expect a pat on the back you just do it because you bloody well should so i think that those two um very differently it continue to be the, the biggest influence on me whether they know it or like it so i'm sure they like it <laughs> <laughs> so lee what do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is and when i say that i mean something that future generations long beyond us would look back on and read a history book and think, what on earth were they thinking? Of our time, I think it's going to be the juxtaposition of the internet and community. Um, I think we saw the internet and connectivity as a silver bullet. I, you know, I studied communication at university and it was this big, exciting new thing that was going to bring us all together and being a level playing field and 
connect us like we have never been before. It's done that, but the last couple of weeks to show me anything, I was not interacting with anyone in my community. And now I'm seeing people and realizing people are in the hospital it was around the corner and I'm missing people too. And I can still connect with them on Zoom and WhatsApp and all these things. But like I'm really starting to long like just hanging with friends and family. Yeah. Human connection. And just the volume of stuff we've taken on because of the internet. Like, oh my God, was I doing some stuff? You know, I don't even know if I needed to do all these things. And and now I'm getting a little bit bored, but Still very content, you know, very content. I've got a roof over my head, I'm healthy. I've got a job. Yeah, job, partner, family, all those things, you know, very lucky. Yeah, geez, we're doing some stuff. And I think looking back, people are going to be going, what the hell were they doing? They like had this crazy thing that connected to them. They made themselves depressed and anxious with all these things and they lost connectivity with humans. So, yeah, I think the juxtaposition or the intersection of community and technology we're probably going to look back at a time and be like, they lost it a little bit. Yeah. I must say that something that's come out of this for me is that that slowing down and not trying to do as much, even though there's a lot to do in terms of getting on top of it and, and trying to still work and be a homeschool teacher apparently and, you know, do all the things, but there's also an enforced slowing down. And I think that's been kind of something that, I've realized I needed to do, but definitely, definitely missing human connection. Yeah. And also feel like how much kinder everyone is too. Like, and everyone's like, it's okay not to be okay now. We're like six months ago, it wasn't. And people are legit saying to people, you know, be safe, look after yourself, not just the throwaway lines. That's nice. Hopefully it continues. Yeah, it is nice. Absolutely. Look, if you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it right now, what would it be? My thing would be, it's okay to be who you are right now. Yeah. I like it. So it's okay to be where you are and who you are, right? Yeah. And all that matters is that moment. You are who you are and um, that's okay. It doesn't matter if, you know, it's not wrong to be happy. It's not wrong to be sad. They're not good or bad. It's just okay to be who you are at that moment. And be okay with it. It's always temporary. Everything changes. But I think just be okay with who you are right now. I love it. Can you think of somebody who you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now? It might be around leadership or it just might be somebody you admire for how they're handling this. From a leadership point of view, I think the Victorian Premier um, has been doing some pretty amazing work and I've been quite looking for him for clarity around what, what the situation is. But, yeah, I think from a leadership point of view, he's been doing a, a pretty amazing job. I can't pronounce his name, I'm going to get it wrong, but the gentleman that leads the um, ASRC, the Refugee Centre here in Footscray. Con. Yeah, Con, you know, like they've they've been doing some amazing work in in Footscray where I live and I'm always impressed with the great work they're doing with the refugees in in a time right now where they're not getting any support. And then also too, I think a lot of work that I was really looking into was uh, Damon Gamow, the director of 2040, and the work there that they, they were doing that that was probably six months ago around really trying to focus on this regeneration um, and how we can regenerate the planet. So, yeah, there are probably three people that I think are doing a pretty good job right now. And this might be a hard one for you as a as somebody that works in the travel sector, but where is your favourite place on earth? Favourite country to go to is Nepal. I absolutely loved trekking to Everest Base Camp, walking up Gokiri. But, yeah, that was absolutely amazing and it's still something that has like massively challenged and changed me. I was definitely a different person after that trip. And then I think it's just showed me the power of 
walking and now I'll absolutely love walking and find a lot of pleasure in that. But yeah, Nepal by far is the most amazing place from the hustle and bustle of Kathmandu to um, just the, the surreal quietness of Nancy Bazaar. It's just an amazing place to, to travel. Yeah, amazing. And what book are you reading if you've got time to read books at the moment, that is? No, I love reading. I've been reading a lot of, I never pronounced his name right, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Breakfast of Champions. I find his books pretty interesting. And then I'm reading from a work point of view, a book on storytelling. So it's by Bobette Buster and it's um, How to Tell Your Story So the World Listens. And that book was pretty interesting. And then I'm a bit of a sport nut as well. So I'm reading a baseball book about 10 innings at Wrigley. So they're the three books. I'm reading right now, but about halfway through all of them. So Yeah, right. It sounds like my reading techniques. Do you listen to podcasts? Yep. What are you listening to? Big fan of the ABC's conversations. I listen to that a lot. It was just amazing uh, one. Uh, they're actually reliving a lot of adventures. It was about a um, woman who uh, trekked the Sahara. So that was pretty interesting and a powerful story. Um, and then um, I'm listening um, on... Secret of Happiness, The Happiness Level, which, again, I find I referenced that earlier, but I find that pretty interesting as well around the science behind what makes us happy and unhappy. unhappy. Yeah, and really important right now too. Well, that's it from me, Lee. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to record this with me. I know you've got a really busy and full and stressful schedule, so I appreciate it. That's cool. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.